Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside? One, two, three, four. This is the Prying Priest Podcast, and I'm Father Yuri Hladio. You're listening to the first half of an unedited interview about the personal stories of amazing people and why they have come to believe what they do. For the second half of these interviews, you can become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash pryingpriest. But for now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin Macon. Kevin Makins. Oh, let's restart then. No. I'll save your face. It's an unedited interview. Whoa, this is in the raw yeah, right here. Yeah. <laughs> hey, good to be here. Kevin Makins. Kevin Makins. Perfect. Pastor yeah. of Eucharist Church in Hamilton, Ontario. And neighbor to Yuri. And that's the more <laughs> the important guy. part. The most important part. Well, this is our first um, in-person interview. My yeah. other interviews so far have been through Zoom because of COVID and that all my guests like live in Winnipeg. Yeah, and this is so much better because we can just have a drink on the front porch of my house and look at your house and uh, yep, and talk to our neighbors as they come by, which is certainly going to happen. I think we should paint a bit of a word picture. So it's a bright sunny day in, it's the 1st of September at the time of this it's recording. It's a beautiful day right now. Uh, about, you know, 25 degrees Celsius, cars pulling into driveways, Neighbors and small dogs walking around. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. And we live in a very, I don't know if people know the neighborhood that we live in. It's like the neighborhood in, in our city, Hamilton, Ontario, which is like down the road from Toronto, ex Steeltown City. We live in probably the most rapidly changing neighborhood in the entire city. So a couple of months ago, I had a moment where I was sitting on the front porch here and I saw a, a guy walking by with a water heater inside of a shopping cart. And then he was passed by a BMW that pulled into the condos across the street and I knew both of them (laughs) and it's like that's the neighborhood right now yeah these worlds have collided uh which makes it a very interesting place to be in I don't know how you found it the last couple of years well that when we first moved here from Winnipeg so me and my wife lived in an area of Winnipeg that was fairly run-of-the-mill yeah and we moved here and it was so trendy because this is James Street North. It's very hip now. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, it's little Portugal. So there's lots of little Portuguese places yeah. with Portuguese men smoking on the sidewalk. And they're of. just so confused by like, what has happened in the last <laughs> yeah. eight years? Like, what is going on? And, and then there's also a big Italian population as well mm-hmm. because it's mm-hmm. Hamilton. But it's also a rough area in that there are a lot of street people. Yeah. Right? Or people it's, who are um, down on their luck. I mean, it's it's a historically, I mean, I'm, so I'm born and raised in Hamilton, We've lived in this neighborhood for almost a decade now. Um, and a lot of it is people for whom when the steel industry fell out, uh, which was the main employer, tens of thousands of people are suddenly unemployed. So mm-hmm. like huge job loss, yeah. addictions, mental health. And then those kids lived in these neighborhoods, like lived in the North End. And then when it became desirable, you know, it's not the fault of any individual moving down here um, or moving from another city. They're just the systems are set up so that there's almost no security net for people who don't have access to some of the means that you or I might have access to. So yeah, it's just immediately people are losing apartments, they're losing houses, places are getting turned into condos, and mm-hmm. you know every apartment building that gets turned into a condo is dozens of people displaced, and mm-hmm. some of them are going to have nowhere to go. So yeah, the shelters are full, COVID's made it even worse, we've got tent cities set up, and we really don't seem to have a master plan from the city's front about how to create safe, affordable housing 
Um, and thankfully, groups like, you know, Indwell, which is a Christian group that does affordable housing, are stepping up in a huge way. The city is doing what they can. But, yeah, it is a, a rapidly changing city. In the last 13 years that we've been downtown, we've just seen it completely flipped on its head. Um, and, yeah, like the questions of what do we do and what is our responsibility as neighbors and as followers of Christ is massive. Mm-hmm. And so why, why did you move here in the first place? You said you moved here 13 years ago? Yeah, so I was raised in Hamilton up on the escarpment. Mm -hmm. So if you don't know Hamilton, there's like a, we call it a mountain. It's really kind of a big hill, but it's it's more fun to say a mountain. People from out west don't like that. Yeah. Um, But there's an escarpment, it's 300 feet high, that cuts right through the middle of the city. And the traditional poverty of the city was all down the mountain, down the hill, which is kind of on the north end, there's the Lake Ontario waterfront. On the south end, there's this escarpment hill. Right, so there's this natural... uh, uh, geographical constraints, yeah, right? There's, there's a barrier. lake on one side and a, and a hill on the other and side. And a hill that you'd have to get up. And, and the social services are downtown and, and kind of the, the cheaper rent was downtown because this is where the steel industry was. So, you know, you go east and it gets a little poor before you hit kind of nicer gentrified suburban areas. You go west, you hit the university, it's all very expensive. You go up on the hill, it's very normal middle class. And the downtown when I was a kid was just a place you don't go. Mm-hmm. Like we would come downtown, we would visit downtown Hamilton like we visited Toronto. In our minds, it was a different place. Yeah. And we never came down here. My dad worked for the city. We would come down occasionally for that. But there were also like, it was a scary place when you were a kid. Like we used yeah. to have peep theaters on King Street, right in the heart of downtown. And that's my early memories of the city is mm-hmm. people drunk outside, people screaming at each other, um, peep show theaters. Mm-hmm. And then when I was 16, um, I worked at a summer camp at a a park called Beasley Park, which is downtown, a couple kilometers from here, like Mm -hmm. one kilometer. And when I was there, I kind of saw the scary side of that place, and it terrified me. But I stuck around for long enough over the whole summer to start seeing all the things you can't see when you're just looking at the stats or you're just driving through. So you start seeing how... All these people that are really caught in cycles of poverty are also incredibly connected socially. They've got community that we never had. People hang out on their front porches and they shout at each other and talk to each other. They know all their neighbors. And I didn't have that growing up in more of a traditional suburban uh, environment. Uh, People down here were resourceful and scrappy. They're collecting bottles. They're walking everywhere. Um, The skate park in Beasley Park just blew my mind. The culture, the vibrancy. So I really fell in love with downtown Hamilton both in the sense of having a bit of a feeling that I wanted to help here. Um, but then once I got close, seeing way more clearly that this place had a lot to teach me. So why did you get to the point where you felt like you wanted to move? Like I know you said yeah, you wanted to help yeah. and everything, but what is it about like your upbringing or, or your life story that <clears throat> that made you have a, a positive disposition towards working in this area? Yeah, so I think for me, I had a big um, faith awakening when I was 17. You've read my book, so anyone who reads the book, you get more... Why would anyone go to church? Why would anyone go to church is the name of my book, and, and boy, I hope you love it. But it, yeah, I, I very some, much enjoyed it. I have oh, a couple of questions great. about it, but we'll leave that to Love later. it. Um, but yeah, so for, for me, this was all very much tied to following Jesus. Um, I went to university to be a gym teacher, thinking I'd do gym in English, which is hysterical to people now to think that I was into gym class. Um, but I liked community. I liked organizing groups of people. You know, you can see some of the, the DNA of that in, in now what I get to do. Um, and when I first worked downtown, I, I didn't have a, an active faith. I was confirmed in the Lutheran church and, um, but didn't know any other Christians didn't really, didn't really know what that meant. I believed in God, but I didn't know what it meant to follow him as a 16 year old. I kind of figured when I'm 40, I'll go back to church 
and like with my kids and my family, I had that modeled for me. Mm-hmm. But at 16 till 40, I just got to do what I want and hope I don't get hit by a bus and end up in hell. So that was kind of, that's just how, that's a crass yeah. way to say it. But mm-hmm. that's how it, in my mind, 16 year old mind, it yeah. was, you know, faith is more or less life insurance for eternity. Right, right. It's not really about the now. It, 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 it was it's about less like, about the now. <laughs> hopefully one day get into heaven, but you know, that's And handing the it point. to my kids. So when I'm 40, I'll go back. Yeah. Um, but when I had this big faith awakening at a youth group when I was 17, sort of realizing, oh, no, this is about following Jesus now. And it's not just about trying to get people into heaven. It's actually about trying to see God's kingdom breaking in. Mm-hmm. And that means actively participating in the places where God is already present. And um, so, yeah, I went to university. I dropped out after a year and a half, which is not in the book. It was in the early drafts, but I had to cut it. I uh, worked a string of bad jobs mm-hmm. before, like, ultimately I worked the night shift at Tim Hortons. And then I got fired, which is just a real highlight and uh in that moment felt very humbled um i had spent my whole life being told by sunday school teachers i was supposed to be a pastor i had this big faith awakening and in my like prayer repentance included but i'm not going to become a pastor it was just a running from that um because in my mind pastors sat in offices and listened to middle class people talk about their problem and there's nothing wrong with that like that someone's got to do that it just wasn't how i was hardwired um, but after during that time when I dropped out of school and I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, I heard about churches that were called church plants. And I was like kind of curious. And as I, it was right when podcasts were starting. So I'd mm-hmm. listen to CD burned podcasts from churches, like listening to sermons just to try to grow in my own faith. And then they'd start talking. I'd hear the announcements and they'd be like, and we're going to be moving to this new location. I was like, they're moving to a new location. Or they'd say, we've got a new members class because we know that lots of you are just coming to church for the first time. And I was like, church for the first time? Like the idea of a church plant was suddenly very interesting. And as I learned more about it, it was this idea that you don't go to an existing church and try to make those people happy, which I can't do. I'm incapable of doing that. But you go to a place and you pay attention and you work the soil. And you start seeing the people that God brings to you to say, we want to be a part of something new. And it's like gardening. Like we do a little bit of gardening in the backyard and you just start seeing if you cultivate the soil and you plant some seeds, something will grow up. And then you go, oh, we need a trellis. We need some support structures for these tomatoes. You know, but you don't try to plant it all. You don't start the garden with all the structure in place. You start, especially like to stretch the metaphor, by just throwing the seed. I mean, this is metaphors Jesus used. And seeing what actually comes up, not what do I think it should look like, but what actually happens. And over two years of, of doing that, oh, sorry, to back it up, I heard that idea and I thought, that sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. That sounds like the kind of ministry I could do. And so I had a big fight with God one night. I was 20 years old. No, I was, I was 19 at the time. Yeah, what does a big fight with God look like? Oh, they still happen all the time. But this big fight with God was after dropping out and I'm laying in bed and I'm yelling at the ceiling. And it used to be that like at night, that was the only time you really couldn't distract yourself. Like you could be online listening to things all day, but at night you didn't have phones back in whenever this was, 2006, this calling moment. Um, so I'd have to just talk to God because I couldn't get away from him. And God was just pressing on me this idea of, you know, you should respond to this call. You, you've been trying things your own way. And that got you fired from the night shift at Tim Hortons. Like yeah. clearly, clear. how bad can my plan be for your life if your plan is not being so great? And I had this moment where I yelled out, okay, fine, God, okay, fine. If you want me to be a pastor, I am way too young, way too inexperienced. I have no education at this point. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm over my head and I don't even want to do it. Mm-hmm. But if you show, if you 
want me to do this. I will show up and you have to do everything else. There's a very like Lutheran theology kind of bargain, pure grace. Yeah. I will show up. I'll be that dumb and I'll put my body into it. But you literally have to take care of everything. I, I don't know what to do from here, but I'll show up. And that's been the arrangement. Like literally last week I had the same fight with God of like, I'm still showing up. Are you going to show up in this COVID time? Are you going to take care of this? Cause I can't, I'm, I'm incapable. Um, but that really, that was the foundation for me of what it meant to be um, following Jesus and specifically to be doing that in a kind of ministry role from there. Like I got a job at a group home. I worked night shifts for the first five years of our church plant. So I was bivocational for, for many years. Um, I went back to school, did an undergrad, did a master's. Um, you know, we started a church, moved downtown, kind of with this mentality of we're just going to see what happens. So it was, you know, about a three-year process from, oh, longer, a six-year process from that prayer when I was 17, 18, till planting the church at 23, which is still insanely young and a terrible idea. Um, but I feel in hindsight, like God was kind of I think God is often willing to use us if we're stupid enough to show up. Yeah. Like, I really believe that. Not just about ministry, but about anyone trying to do what God's called them to do, whether that's in healthcare, raising families, mentoring in, in an inner city, um, trying to, to create community in a suburb, like whatever your place is, you want to do something that makes you feel completely incompetent, mm-hmm. whether it's vocational or it's calling in other ways. Um, you want to be at that place where you say, God, I am not capable of doing this in my own strength. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in some weird way, God almost used our church by not letting us become a total tire fire was almost a, a message to the wise of our culture around us. And to the, the kind of church strategist saying, here's how you make sure it's a success was being like, no, 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 these losers did it when they had no idea what they were doing. But if you show up, God will continually meet you there. Mm-hmm. And whatever that looks like is going to vary based on case by case. Yeah. But God will meet you there. I have a question about that idea of moving from a place of comfort into a place of discomfort for the purposes of, you know, living there, tilling the soil, right? Uh, yeah. sp- spreading the word and everything like that. I think there's been a lot of uh, negativity towards Christianity, especially in the context of colonialism and and things of that sort where where this idea of spreading your faith itself just a christian saying hey let me tell you about jesus can be met with extreme um uh almost hatred right against that kind of thing um so i wanted to maybe get like a story or, or your take on any experiences like that because you moved purposely as a christian into an area in to bring christ into that area yeah yeah so how 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 do you sort of navigate that tension that we live in in Canada in 2020. Yeah, I mean, and, and so I think the Book of Acts is an excellent guide for us in this. Um, the Book of Acts, I, I'm struck by how incarnated their witness is. So when they're with Jews and Jewish people and they're Jewish, they're with their own people. They'll fight all day. When they go to Gentile spaces, they're much more observant. They spend more time there. You know, so you can see even in the, in the Book of Acts how they're doing this. The problem is the Book of Acts is the only time where, um, well, that in that culture, it was still a first word that they were bringing. In our culture, the first word has been said a long time ago. 500 years ago, uh, imperial, imperially tied Christians came with guns, swords, and Bibles to Turtle Island, uh, North America, and proceeded to destroy the existing culture here. So I have... No judgment on those who would say, 
I'm skeptical of evangelism because we've only seen it. Most of us, most of us, average North American people on Turtle Island, have only seen this done in a particular way. And the way is not Christ-like. Now, it doesn't mean that the people who were doing this, the Jesuits, the missionaries, doesn't mean that they weren't trying to do this in a Christ-like way. I believe that many of them were. But when you're in the bed with the empire, you're going to, well, I had a professor who put it in very colorful language, but you're going to get screwed um, if you're in the bed with the empire because the empire has the power and is going to use you. So I do believe God works in that and God worked in that in, in ways that the spirit does. But if that's our, our model of evangelism, then yeah, people are fair to be critical of it. Now, I would push back on people critical of it and say, you have no problem exporting American media all over the world. And American media has its own narratives and good news and religious message about individual freedom and the pursuit of happiness and wealth and expression. These are all Western values, which you have no problem intellectually putting out in the world and culturally colonizing other places. So... While I share the critique, I will say there's a certain hypocrisy we have where we'll put that on the church or institutions, but none of us consider TikTok. Um, you know, we don't we, we get we think it's silly when Trump, who I am not a fan of, but, you know, when he says, well, this is going to break into Chinese owned business is going to break into America. There's a certain sort of like awareness there that in the same way, if, if you know, other countries all the time you hear saying we don't want Western influence here. So colonization is incredibly complicated in the modern world. So all that said, I like naming the deconstruction. I like naming the ways that things have failed. But I've also heard it said any old donkey can kick down a barn, but it takes a special one to build it. Like at a certain point, you can tear this all apart, but you got to live your life. And if you're going to live your life as a holistic, integrated person, you're going to have to know how to share things you find valuable. And we all do this every day. We talk about what Netflix show we're watching. We talk about products we enjoy. You know, you brought me over a beer here, and it's obviously one that you like. And if I said, oh, I like this, it's from Collective Arts down the street. Mm -hmm. So we have no problem evangelizing about many things. But for some reason, religion, um, and and not just religion, but our own experience of, of the divine, our experience of church, is just has been so loaded with hostility and violence that we don't know how to do that. So, with all, gosh, I'm such a ranter. Hey, uh, I, I, got, I got a question. Um, so, is there is there a time where you shared the good news with somebody? Yeah. And yeah. upon reflection, you go, "Oh wow, I did that in a very like bad way." Oh my gosh. Or or, or like I just I fell into these old traps or or anything like that. So I think when I was when I was working in a youth group kind of setting. Um, which I did, I volunteered in my youth group for a couple of years. I really did have this idea that like my job was to make this person a Christian. That was my job. Um, and I do want to get into what does good evangelism look like? Cause I'm very passionate about this idea. Um, but I'll, we'll start with, I would, I would sit down with someone and say like, I have good news for them. They have a life full of sin. And by the end of this conversation, not only will they trust Jesus and hi, Ann. Yeah, we're just recording something. It's all good. Oh, thank you. Our neighbors come by with mail for my housemate. Sorry, all good. Thank you. Sorry to, sorry to no, it's I'm all good. All. This is this is why you do podcasts up front. Neighbor exactly. connection. Exactly. Which is good good witness in mm-hmm, a way. Mm-hmm. But we'll get to that. So yeah, I, I had this idea of like, you know, I sat down with this kid once and I remember just saying to him like, do you believe in God? And he's like, well, I don't know if I believe in God. And I was like, well, I have five arguments for the theory of God. 
I'm going to walk you through them and, and you can rebuke them each, but I've got rebukes for the rebukes because I've read a book by Ravi Zacharias and I have a mental flow chart in my mind and you are not a person that I'm paying attention to. Yeah. You are an object to be slotted through my flow chart so that at the end, not only do you check the trust Jesus, but you check the Christian box and you check my kind of Christian box. And now you come to church with me, which ultimately means that you become like me, which is not the way the book of Acts talks about evangelism. Um, so, you know, Acts 9 and 10, uh, Peter and the Roman centurion, Cornelius. Cornelius confronts Peter with his own prejudice. Peter sees this sheet falling from the sky with all these animals on it, and he comes to realize that he has been calling people unclean, and that the Spirit has now said to him, you should call no one unclean, and then he's invited to a Roman, a foreigner's house, which is breaking all cleanliness laws. So Cornelius is the place where Peter is converted more to the way of Jesus by realizing that the Spirit's calling him out of his tribalism and into a multi-ethnic, multicultural expression of faith, of following Jesus. Peter happens to know that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again. And he shares that with Cornelius when Cornelius says, I'm curious, can you share good news with me? He takes the invitation. And they're both transformed. They're both converted in different ways and at different points in their journey, but they are both converted. I think when I used to do evangelism, I had this kind of, I'm here to give you something. I'm here to bring something to you. I now see witness and evangelism. I even prefer the word witness um, as, as being attentive to God's working in a particular place or a particular person and treating that place as a holy place where God is already present. So I'm not actually bringing God here. God's been here a long time, um, presumably since the, since the beginning, <laughs> since the word. So I'm here to notice where God is. I'm here to point it out to others and to myself. I'm here to celebrate it. Um, I'm also here to pay attention to people, not as objects to be transformed or objects to be converted, but as people who are loved. You know, Eugene Peterson, one of my pastoral heroes, has the line that people are not problems to be solved. They are mysteries to be embraced. And once you embrace a person as a mystery, you're no longer fundamentally concerned with making them say or do something across a line, especially because we all know people that have crossed lines of faith and then come back across that line and deconverted. We all know stories of that. So the point can't be, how do I get checkboxes for my church, my ministry, my ego? It has to be, how do I pay enough attention to someone else that the Holy Spirit does that deep soul work of actually transforming them, which will always transform me. It doesn't mean that there aren't times where I'm going to have to put into articulated senses where I see Jesus in someone's life and where Jesus has been found in church history and where Jesus was found in the incarnation. Like that's where Christ was. And then I'm going to have to share about sin and repentance and the good news of, of, of forgiveness. But if I'm paying attention to a person, these are never, con these are never abstract ideas. It's always that I talk to someone long enough and they trust me enough to finally open up with their pain. So, you know, I, I, a guy met with me years ago who had had an affair on his wife and wanted to talk about his affair. He didn't want to talk about Jesus. He just wanted to talk about his affair um, and wanted to process it and see if there was hope for his marriage. And over a number of meetings and then him coming to a couple of church things and meeting other people, um, the goal was never to get him to church. The goal was to get him to Jesus. And it wasn't even that. The goal was to help him realize that Jesus was there. You know, in his lowest moment, Christ is in the abyss with you. And as we talked... I began to realize, like, oh, he's holding a lot of unforgiveness towards himself. You know, um, his wife hasn't yet forgiven him, but he has not forgiven himself, and he can't imagine that. So suddenly the gospel is not an abstract idea. I need to convince you you're a sinner so I can convince you to repent. You know where you sinned. 
I just need to help you articulate that that is sin. And then I need to help you see that that sin can be forgiven, not just by me and not just by your wife, but by the creator and source of all things. You know, the very existence of reality that you've wounded can can be mended. Mm. And that's incredibly good news. Whether he starts right. in a physical, psychological, or spiritual place, that's an incredibly good news. Um, so that, that that's a case where I feel like the evangelism, the witness, mm-hmm. I'm trying to witness to a way of being, which means I have to experience it long before I, I can articulate it. Um, but I don't get off the hook of ever having to articulate it, mm-hmm. which I would like to remind all my friends who are young Christians. We never get off the hook of having to take the risky uh, step of articulating something that we believe to be mm-hmm. true or put our trust in. There is a parable of Jesus that I think Christians can often completely misunderstand. And mm-hmm. that's the one in, in Matthew gospel of Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is teaching in these parables and he gives a parable about the, you know, quote last judgment. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And there's the sheep and the goats and the good guys are the sheep who get go on his right. And the bad guys are the goats who go on his left. And of course, the more of the stories, you don't want to be the sheep or anything like that. Oh, be a good guy. <laughs> yeah, right. Be a good guy. Be good. Try harder. <laughs> but <laughs> the, works. one of the points, uh, one of the, 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 the punchline, right. Is that Jesus says to the good, to the sheep, he says, when I was poor, you know, you, you came and, and you fed me, you gave me clothes, you, you took care of me, you visited me in prison, da 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 And then they're all like, wait, when did we ever do that? Right, we don't know you from anyone. Right, and, and he said, well, uh, when you did it to the least of, you know, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me personally. And I think a lot of Christians read that and they think, okay, our job is to go and help people. Mm. And our job is then to be Christ and to go and deliver Christ to people. Mm. But if you actually read the, the punchline of the entire message is that, no, 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 you go to help people so that you can actually see Christ. Right. Right. That, that, that Christ is in the face of the poor person or right. the person who needs help. And you right. are the one who is being educated. Right. You, you, you are, are the are one who is being preached to. Yes. You are the one who's being witnessed to and, when and you go and, and serve others. The, the pressure comes off once you do that, right? Like, oh, I don't need to try to convert someone. Because I don't know if anyone listening to this has ever tried to convert somebody. It's not fun. And you know what? Who it's fun for is people with ego issues who need to argue. And it can be very insecure. Like, uh, it, it, I can imagine a person who's trying to convert a lot of people being very insecure about their own very salvation. Very insecure. Right? There's almost a sense of, if I can convince you it's true, now I can believe it's true. Right? Like, a, vi- a vicarious faith. Well, if you believe it, then whoo. Thank goodness I convinced you to believe it, because now if you believe it, that's two of us. There's another wrinkle here, though, in certain traditions of theology, that you can only go to heaven if you have the appropriate intellectual knowledge and you agree to that knowledge. Yeah. So how how do you sort of approach that topic? So yeah. be, because I know of some people that they share the gospel because they feel obligated to because they feel that if they don't try and get you to agree to certain intellectual um, statements that you will burn eternally in hell forever. Yeah. And it w- so whenever I see people that are actually say on the street, like Jehovah's Witnesses, like or whatever, yeah. I, I'm sort of like, my gut reaction is, well, thank you. It, like you care enough about me to try and get me not to be burning in hell for all eternity. I yeah. disagree with your theology, but like, but if but I, I believe I that this right. is, this is the tamest reaction we should have. If you believe that, right. Um, I mean, so yeah, we had, we had street preachers at an art crawl event a couple of, uh, years ago 
and I went up and was talking to them and, and they didn't know it was art crawl. They didn't know what was happening. They were from out of town. They were driving by and saw crowds and I guess they just had the signs in the back of their car. Um, and I went out and talked to them for a while and tried to understand a bit more of them. And eventually I called over a more fundamentalist pastor I know in Hamilton who I saw. And I said, oh, so-and-so's here. He will tell you that you got that this isn't going to work and you shouldn't do this, but you actually will not think he's a heretic. So I'm going to call him over and he can talk to you guys. So it was a funny moment, and I, but I left that conversation with them. You know, I asked them during it, does this work? Has this ever worked? Tell me a story, I said to them, of a time when someone became a Christian or even went to church with you because of this. And they couldn't name one. They said they do it weekly. And they didn't even have one time where it worked. So at the very least, the fruit of it isn't there. Um, but they said, you know, no, it doesn't matter if it works. It's that we're called to do it. So we do it. And I, when I left, I thought, I don't think it works. I don't think it's fruitful. I think it actually makes faith more complicated for, for me to have a neighborhood witness. You've now given people a negative image of faith um, that I had to deconstruct before we built something more positive. However, I'm going to go to a bar later and hang out with my friends. And you're out with your people from church with a sign. So I'm not even saying I'm more righteous than you. I'm just saying you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but, but, the, you know, this is, this is, I, I try hard to see with non-dualistic eyes, right? To, to not enemy make and not scapegoat. I really try to work at that, which is hard because I'm an asshole. So I'm always, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on this podcast. You can say whatever okay. you want Great. on this podcast. I'm just, I'm just a, like, I'm like, without Jesus, I would be such a monster. I'm, I'm judgmental. I'm, I'm hot headed. Um, I'm angry all the time with things I think are wrong, you know, and that judgmentalism makes me unhappy with myself, you know? So it's not just trying to be nice to others. I'm trying to be gracious with myself. So I have to be gracious with them. And I did have this reason, this realization of like, you know, I, I disagree with them, but I'm, I'm grateful that they care, but I would like to free them from the endless existential angst of thinking that everyone everywhere is going to burn for all of eternity in active pain and that the God you love caused it and, and that you might still go there because I suspect you're still worried you're not Christian enough. So, so I want to I want to exercise that unclean spirit that from demon. them, mm -hmm. so that they can be more free. But I don't want to take away from them that passion. Yeah. I want them to have that passion, and, yeah. and you know, I honor that passion even while at the same time thinking they're kind of nuts. Yeah, yeah. And I want to emulate that passion, but from a much healthier, holistic, yeah. non-anxious space. Have you ever been evangelized too? Um, I have like in those interactions on the street and, mm -hmm. and they have this kind of funny, there's a funny escalation of evangelism. I don't know if you've experienced this too, where you're like, I'm a Christian and they're like, Oh, that's great. You're a Christian. What church? Right. And you're like, yeah. Oh, here, here's where they're going to, you know, and then they're like, what church? Oh, what, 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 have you said this prayer? Well, have you taken this class? Well, have you been baptized? Well, have you spoken in tongues? It's like, you can never really be enough. You can never really rest. Which is the, the sign of bad religion, is that any, yeah. any bad religion, secular or, or, um, or, you know, religious in the traditional sense. I heard uh, David Zoll, he has a book called Seculosity about, about secular religions, you know, mm -hmm. how parenting and politics have become new religions. And his fundamental assertion is that, you know, something's a religion when it tells you that you're never enough. You know, you never have enoughness. Mm-hmm. And so I, I look for that a lot in my own faith. You know, am I telling people Jesus loves you and, and you are rescued by him just by putting your trust in nothing more, nothing less? Or am I saying, and then 
you've got to do some quiet time in the morning. And then yeah. you've got to, you know, follow all these rules and don't do these bad things and make sure you do these good things. And am I doing that out of a sense that the best life you can live is a life living in the rhythms of God around generosity and Sabbath? Like, that's a good thing. Or am I doing this with the sense of anxiety of soon you'll be enough, but you're not yet enough. You just need to do a little more to be saved. Mm-hmm. Um, so us, I, us Orthodox can get, with, can get in that trap. Yeah. Right. We have. We, we have, have a lot of things. We have to a lot do. of things. We have less right? things. We <laughs> yeah. have like, can you tithe, <laughs> ideally, and have some quiet time? That's fine. That's enough for us Protestants. But we have like hoops on hoops on hoops. Like there's hoops you have to jump through to get to the main room where there are the hoops that you have to jump through. Right. Well, right. I I went to a service and I couldn't receive communion, which I'm right. not offended by because I understand, I understand why. Mm. And I understand that that's actually, I think that there's a good thing in that, but I can easily see how that good impulse would shift to, well, you're not really enough until you receive communion. Yeah. Like a, and, and a good one of the, thing could be taken. One of the problems with closed communion in the Orthodox Church is that, um, so an Orthodox Christian priest who cannot give communion to somebody because they're not Orthodox or they're, what, they're not whatever it is that you need to be to receive communion, Yeah, that activity... Should be done. Oh, a sandwich has come my out. Wife has brought, my wife has brought me a sandwich. I sound like the people are like, what church is this again? Yeah. <laughs> she made one for herself and we share the load. Thanks well, I'll do a little talking and you can. Uh, yeah, eat, I'm just going to listen. Yeah, yeah. So, so an Orthodox Christian priest, when you don't give communion to somebody because they don't fit the, you know, their requirements, mm-hmm. that should be done with tears in your eyes, hmm. right? That that should be done in and should be understood as a complete and utter tragedy, hmm. right? The, the breaking of communion between Christian brothers and sisters should be an absolute tragedy mm-hmm. for us Orthodox and that we should practice closed communion with tears in our eyes. But so often it is put forward as a point of pride. Yeah that this is a way that we get to point at who is wrong right. and who is right. right. And it's just not helpful in any way. And now the sandwich is flipping. <laughs> really screwed up. It put me on the spot there with that tears in your eyes. I was like, oh no. And I spilled my sandwich. And now there are tears in your eyes from the spilled I'm, sandwich. I'm listening still. Uh, and, and yeah, like there's, um, there are one of the questions that I, like to ask on this podcast that maybe I'll ask you, but um, I hope to ask a lot of people is like, I'm an Orthodox Christian. Why aren't you an Orthodox Christian? Right. And uh, I asked my best friend, Justin in, in Winnipeg, that question. And he went off to tell me all the reasons why Orthodoxy is great. But then later in the Patreon only episode, he told me all the reasons he doesn't want to become. So I was going to ask you this question. Like, do you feel that, um, and like, I'm not offended by that. We, we we're friends. So yeah, for anyone listening, this is not like, <laughs> this is not straight shooting <laughs> from, from nothing. Do you feel like, you know, Kevin really should become an Orthodox Christian because this is the true church? Um, a, a part of or me... I, I said two things there, so maybe I shouldn't say the motives. Do you feel like Kevin should be an Orthodox Christian? Yeah, I, I, I get that uh, impulse for sure. Mm-hmm. Like my emotional Which impulse. Which I'm not offended by at all. Right. And, and I think that that's sort of a natural human impulse that we want other people to like the things that we like. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm a Tiger Cats fan. I want people to be Tiger Cats fans unless you're an Argo fan. That's the right team. (laughs) Yeah. Unless you're an Argo fan and then I want you to go away. Then I want you to be in hell for all of eternity. No, that's so. I just joke. See, clearly I don't believe in the eternal conscious torment or you can't joke about it. Yeah. Which is a funny thing also. Mm -hmm. I think that almost no one believes 
in eternal conscious torment. No one behaves like they believe like they in believe, eternal conscious which torment, makes me even believe. though they they think that they believe that. You might check that box, but I think the psychological weight of that would make a person snap. Yeah, and and how dare you not share the gospel at all you times with every person? You should be literally pouring all your money into. Uh, we don't have to go down this road, no. but like people basically do not behave as though they believe in eternal hell. Yeah. Which is, I mean, I, I believe, I don't, I'm not a, a kind of cheap universalist. I, I don't believe that everything just gets put back in the box. But I, I trust that God's going to take care of it. Like, yeah. I'm not anxious about the future. I'm not anxious about the, the, the kingdom come and the judgment and, and the setting right of all things. Yeah. Um, which means I don't have to scream. But mm-hmm. I also can be lazy because yeah. I believe, oh, God's got it. What do I need to help with? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. okay, so I, 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 thinking, I want you to become orthodox in the sense, okay. in the sense of, I really like it and I want to share that with mm-hmm. you. Um, but also in the sense that I, I think that it is a very uh, holistic faith tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the challenges that orthodoxy has in North America is that it has not yet indigenized, mm. right? So so um, in North America, to become orthodox, you often have to take on another culture mm-hmm. that you that is not your culture, right? Um, you'll get people who are are just regular Canadians that become Orthodox and all of a sudden they're interested in like Russian history and they start learning Russian and everything right. because you almost have to. Right. Because that's the tradition it comes from. Which or or Greek. Which is back to the Greek. book of Acts is the right. question of do the Gentiles have to become Jews to follow Christ? Or can they follow Christ as Gentiles? Yeah. In, in their fullness of yeah. their culture of Gentiles. And there are elements that say, you know, sexual morality, meat sacrifice, or um, the blood. You know, they have these kind of markers in Acts 14 of what that means, but but it's functionally as Gentiles you come in. Um, yes, but there is also that sense of keeping those scriptures as well, mm-hmm. right? So that's not explicitly talked about in, in Acts, mm-hmm. but, you know, Paul in Romans talks a lot about that he's navigating the tension between, well, Jewish people are obviously the people of God, and yeah. Jesus was a Jew, and he saved the Jews, and he is the king of the Jews. They got here first. But at the same time, the Jews, through Jesus, have now invited the entire world to that table. Mm-hmm. So if you are, if you are, so to this day, if you are a Christian and you're not Jewish, you are a guest. You've been grafted at the in. Ta- yes, you're a guest at that table, right? Yeah. And so in that sense, the Gentiles still needed to have a degree of that Jewish scriptural tradition. Yeah, so which makes sense of from the orthodox perspective, you have to know your story. So you have to right. know mm-hmm. something about Roman uh, yeah. about Russian history and right. about the early church. So but right now if you were to become orthodox in like let, let take take maybe my church out of it, right? Sure. If you were to become orthodox um in tomorrow, you would functionally have to just sort of to a degree, just become a Greek or become a right, Serb right, or become culturally. or become Ukrainian right? to be able to do that. Well, it and, does seem like there's a lot of Eastern Orthodox expressions popping up. Maybe not a lot, but some. I, I know of two now, <laughs> you and my other friend, Father Evan, mm-hmm. that seem to be saying we want a, a genuinely, you know, reflecting the culture that we are in yeah. expression of Orthodox. Faith. Yeah, and that doesn't mean <clears throat> getting just wholesale getting rid of the cultural traditions we've inherited, right? right so I, I'm, I'm in the OCA, which is Orthodox Church of America, and our jurisdiction comes from the Russian and Slavic tradition of expression of orthodoxy. Yeah. And that doesn't mean you just wholesale get rid of that for some reason. Like, I can't yeah. make up a... Father Yuri can't make up a better version of that, right? Right, right. <laughs> but at the same time, one of these... It just takes time to let that process happen and to indigenize 
orthodoxy to, till you have a true orthodox church of North America. Mm. Well, you need people experimenting with it. Like you need people that right. are going to R&D it, mm-hmm. who are going to say, yep, we're going to try this, we're going to try that. It might fail, it might succeed, um, You're but seeing it we're going to take notes. <laughs> You're seeing it pop up a little bit in the musical tradition, mm. which is one of the least offensive things to change. Yeah, you um, just choose your battles. Right, right. Uh, so to just sing something in a different melody and somebody can compose melodies that sound more like Americana or right. or there's the famous now Christ is Risen melody, which is done in the Appalachian style. Okay. And you sing it and you're like, mm-hmm. this feels like it has heritage yeah. in America, yeah. right? Not so much in Canada, but but right. you, you sort of get that yeah. that sense. But that is, that is a, a difficult thing to translate. I mean, I find it interesting because I don't know if I... I don't know how to understand this, but like, yeah, I don't, I don't desire you to become Protestant at all. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If you became Protestant, I think I'd actually feel quite a, a sadness because I want to see the the Orthodox Church, you know, um, grow and and flourish. But I I would want anyone I know to become a follower of Christ and to be a part of a church, mm-hmm. um, preferably a church that lines up with what I think. But also, mm-hmm. like, it's okay if it doesn't. Um, but I don't know if that is a strength of conviction or a lack of conviction or just a different calling that I think a part of my calling is uh, kind of be interdenominational, interchurch to try to bring about some unity, whereas others need to strengthen the, the lane that they're in for the good of the whole church. But I, I do wonder, is that a weakness on my part of, of belonging to the wider church in a weak way? Or is that a strength that I, I'm not tribal in that way? Um I don't know if you have an answer for me. Yeah, no answer. You're like, right the answer now. is it's weak and you need to become orthodox. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the answer is our church meets on Saturdays at yeah, 5 p.m. I know, <laughs> I know, I know. And truthfully, I mean, I've been to a, a service of yours and your ordination service and I really find them beautiful. Um, it's a lot. You guys do everything five times. I'm like, you could just do it once. Once is fine. Yeah, but we're humans. You can't get it once. That's why we like it. I really like it. I, if, hey, if I wasn't a pastor, there's as good a chance I'd end up in the Orthodox Church as any other church. Uh I probably wouldn't end up in a like super Protestant church. I'd probably have to go to something floofier if I wasn't actually uh, involved in the way I am now, just to have a change of scenery. So there's a chance. So so to take us to the end of our our are we done main already? Episode. Well, well, we're done the public episode. We're gonna do oh our Patreon gosh. Patreon People only episode. Patreons. After. <laughs> we have barely scratched the surface. We're gonna talk about in the Patreon episode. I do want to talk about the story that I'm sure you've told a million times. But it's when you went to Vancouver and had the assessment for your yeah, mission. The church plant boot camp, and we failed. This is why you got to get. You want these hot <laughs> scoops? You got to either buy my book or get the Patreon. You, you preferably buy your book. Preferably but, do both. You know, it's like twenty bucks for a book and five bucks for Patreon. Come on, you yeah. can do that. Yeah, you could do three dollars per interview. Boom, so you're paying, done. you know, twelve bucks a month. It's not bad. Not bad. Uh, anyways, that's our plug. Great um, plug. I want to ask a question about. We were talking a lot about evangelism and things like that. Um. Could you tell a quick story about a time where you maybe shared the good news and it was just perfect? Like it was smooth, like like it just worked. Everything was beautiful. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there's kind of two ways that I, I find sharing the good news works in my life. Um, there's like pop-ups and then there's like ones that have longevity. So the pop-up is often, <clears throat> I'm at a party, I'm, I'm walking the street at night, and the most recent one was I, that I can think of right now was pre-COVID, it was probably last fall, I was riding home from a, a 
party or an event at a friend's house at like 1 a.m. Um, and I was just riding home and take, taking the long way on my bike, just kind of taking in the streets. And I, I often do that. I'll just take the long way home. I, I like being out at night. And I got two kids that get me up early in the morning. So I've got to enjoy the, the evenings when I have it. And I rode by uh, the, a bar on, on James Street that I often go to and, and know people at. And outside saw some people and they were like, hey, hey, hey. And so I pulled over and said hi. And one of them was like, she was kind of, kind of drunk, not super, like not like smashed, just like she was, she was tipsy. And she just started asking me questions about God, which people always do. And it's better if they're high because then they remember it the next day. If they're drunk, they don't always remember it. But they still sometimes do. And I'm struck often by how often I'll, I'll get an email months later saying thanks for that conversation. So I try to honor it like this is the person God put before me, you know, in all of their, their vulnerability. And this person just started asking me about, you know, you're a pastor, right? Like the best thing about being a pastor for me is, you know, I'm actually probably an evangelist by temperament and by, by gifting. Like that's what I think the spiritual gift that I've been given is, is witness in a funny way. So I love talking about this stuff. Uh, and if you're a pastor, people bring it up with you because they think you want to talk about it, which I do. And she was just like, you know, what do you, what do you think God thinks of me? What is, is there God and what does God think of us? And I was like, God loves us. She said, what do you think God thinks of me? And I just said, and it was so weird. I felt very weird about it. I just said, I think that God is, I think that God is just crazy about you. Like, I think that he just thinks of you and and lights up at this person he made who he just wants the best for and flourishing for and who he, he wants to know more and more. And afterwards I was like, somebody else was like, he's crazy about you, like joking. And I was like, oh crap, do I back off and make a joke of this? And I was like, no, no, this is whole hog. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not kidding. I think that that's the best way to describe how the divine feels about you is that the divine is crazy about you. And later I felt like, Ooh, was that too cheeky? Was that too whatever? But in the moment it just felt like, no, that's right. And the, you know, the person started crying when I said that. And I thought about it a lot later thinking, you know, I I wonder how that impacts them. I wonder if anyone's ever told them that anyone is crazy about them. Never mind God. And so those are kind of those pop-ups. I don't know what that means in her life. I don't know if she'll ever go to church or, become a follower of Jesus. But I know that for that moment, that was valuable. Then there are examples where the relationship is a lot longer. Um, you know, a person I can think of who we were friends for years. We met at a coffee shop. We uh, played games together. We hung out. They came to church a couple of times. They had no church background. And just through the interacting back and forth over years um, was there when something came up. I often think that evangelism is when done properly is holding something yourself delicately, but firmly so that when the other person needs it, they know where to find it. Um, so I talk about holding the egg, like is it kind of an example of this that some people, you know, if you think of your faith as an egg, they kind of hold their faith so tightly. They're like, I want everyone to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Then and they crush the egg. They break it in their hand and the eggs all over their hand. Now it's gross because they're just too stressed. And other people, have an egg and someone says is that an egg and they go no and they throw the egg across the room <laughs> yeah and they're like there's no egg there's no egg oh we got a big truck here give it a second that's fine we can keep talking yeah we we're talking through it anyways it's true um and they throw the egg away <laughs> <laughs> this is real this is how church life really is right like you try and do something and then a truck drives through right which is perfect because at least it's live yeah yeah um so yeah, I think that it's like, don't crush the egg, but with your anxiety and your control. Don't throw the egg away with your fear and your shame or your doubts. Just hold it. Just hold the egg. 
And eventually someone's going to say, you know, in this case, this person went through a bad breakup, had major health issues, and eventually said to me, you know, called me because I was their friend and I was the religious one. And we talked on the phone and I said, can I pray for you? And, you know, that prayer led to conversations, led to them working through questions in their mind, led to them confessing Jesus as Lord and being baptized. Um, and now carrying on a complicated relationship with faith and trying to figure out what it means to be a part of a church. Like, it's not like that's the end of the story, but that was a time when that witness over years resulted in beautiful fruit. Um, and so, yeah, I think discipleship is a whole other side of this that I'm not as good at. I don't know how to disciple people as well as I know how to help them enter into the faith. Um, but I'm really passionate about that. And I think it is about that long obedience in the same direction to people, not to ideas or uh, not to, you know, slots on a flow chart, but to people. That means that when they have the crisis, they know who to ask. If you'd like to listen to the second half of this interview, you can head over to patreon.com slash priest. Your support is what makes this podcast possible. Thanks for listening. Say, why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside?